Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, Angela and I were talking on the front row about uh, Time Change Sunday, and we were wondering if we could not just set back one hour, but two hours. Um, so if you're open to that, um, just let us know, and uh, we'll do what we can. Uh, you know, talk to the government or whatever it is. It is uh, it's good to be with you this morning. Um, our pastor is uh, on a much-needed uh, reprieve. He has gone uh, down to see some of the grandbabies down in Florida, and um, uh, hoping they get some rest and relaxation. But he did. He texted me this morning, asked if I would communicate that he loves you, he misses you, and he will be back, Lord willing, uh, next Sunday. And uh, I just wanted to say this. I want to say how much, uh, how much I appreciate how thankful I am uh, for our pastor and his courage, his conviction uh, to stand in this pulpit and to proclaim uh, truth is, is a rarity. And so I am so thankful uh, he is a gift to this church family. Well, this morning, before we get started, let's go ahead and look to the Lord's Prayer, as is our custom, and uh, let's pray together. If it's on there, you probably know it by heart now. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen, amen, and amen. This morning, if you, uh, if you have your Bible or if you have your notes, uh, it will be on the screen. Uh, but if you have your Bible this morning, we're going to be in the book of Jonah, which is in the Old Testament, Jonah chapter 3. And um, near the end of this summer, uh, here on Wednesdays, I did a five-week study on the, on the book of Jonah. Uh, it's only a, a four chapters, but we extended it uh, because there's just so much there. And um, there, is a, there is a lot to be said about the book of Jonah. I know that in in many educated cultures, we have kind of relegated the, the events of Jonah's life to, to the children, and, and it has become more for, for Christian Americans, more like an allegory or a metaphor for something else. Uh, but this morning, I, wanna, I want to just remind us that uh, Scripture is not an allegory. It is not mythological. Uh, scripture are real-life events that have happened in many of which, which have been corroborated through secular history. And Jonah is one of these books. And so um, as I was uh, teaching through, um, there are just so many, uh, you know, we, we kind of pawn it off to the children. The reality is Jonah is a very mature, very, there are a lot of adult themes in, in the book of Jonah. The sovereignty of God is just so profoundly seen in uh, this book. The, the depravity of men, uh, good men and bad men is seen throughout the book. But as much of anything that's seen throughout Jonah is the reality that God is willing and able to go to extreme measures to save those who are lost. And in the midst of, of this teaching, there was one particular uh, uh, teaching that, that really gripped my heart, really gripped the soul of who I am, and, and it became very personal to me. And so this morning, I wanted to, I wanted to share that with you. Uh, we're going to focus in Jonah chapter 3 this morning, but uh, before we read the scripture, let me just give you a quick little recap, uh, just in case you have been under a rock somewhere and you don't know the events of Jonah's life. Jonah was a man of God. He was a prophet. His name, Jonah, means it is literally translated dove, which is kind of ironic because everything that Jonah touches in the book of Jonah is complete chaos. Uh, it's not peaceful. It's not harmless. Um, there are consequences that come along with things that Jonah does. But Jonah is a man of God. He's a prophet. And he is willing and able not only to sense the promptings of the Spirit of God, but he, according to chapter 1, he is able to hear the audible voice of God Almighty. The father comes to Jonah and he says, Jonah, there are these people in Nineveh. And I need you to go and I need you to teach them this lesson of judgment that's coming to them unless they turn to me and they repent of their wicked ways. And so Jonah, um, he does not like what God is asking him to do. 
for a number of reasons that we'll talk about this morning. But Jonah does what many of us would do given the circumstances. Jonah, instead of going off to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the complete opposite direction to a place called Tarshish. And so Jonah goes and the Bible says he gets onto a ship and he, he pays money to, for a ticket to get on the ship in the Mediterranean Sea and he sets off for Tarshish. And the Bible says that Jonah, in his despondency to what God has called him to do, that Jonah ends up falling asleep in the, in the heart of the ship. And as he falls asleep, the Bible says that God himself threw or he hurled a great storm onto the Mediterranean Sea. It was such a storm, the Bible says, that the boat was beginning to buckle. Uh, the, the mariners, the sailors, they thought that the boat was going to fall apart. And so they started unloading cargo, all their merchandise, everything. They started throwing it overboard in hopes that they wouldn't sink and, and die in this thing. And so uh, the, the captain of the ship goes down and he gets Jonah who's asleep. He shakes him awake and he says, listen, man, we are calling out to our gods that they may save us from this travesty. Would you come and would you call out to your God in hopes that he would save us from this? And Jonah's a little inconspicuous, and he, he kind of shields things, but it's ultimately figured out that Jonah is the culprit. He is the reason that God has sent this storm onto the ship. And Jonah tells the guys, he says, listen, I'm the reason that you are in this trial, and if you want this to be done with, what you need to do is you need to take me and you need to throw me overboard. And of course, the, you know, they're mariners, they're not murderers. They, they decide that they are not going to throw Jonah overboard. And the Bible says that they dug in all the more and they rode harder and they were trying to do everything they could to preserve their lives. But it got so severe that to the point that the mariners decided if this prophet says that he is the cause and he is willing for us to throw him overboard, then we're going to do it. And they threw him overboard. And the Bible says that as Jonah is sinking to his death, that God sovereignly appoints a sea creature. We call him a whale. We're not really sure what kind of a sea creature it was. And this sea creature is appointed to come and to swallow, consume Jonah whole. And the Bible says that Jonah was in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights before he came to a place of repentance and willingness to do what God had called him to do. Sometimes I think I'm a little reluctant to be completely obedient in the moment. But I've never quite had an experience like this. And so we pick up Jonah, the very last verse of chapter 2, and we're going to read the entirety of chapter 3 if you follow along with me. The Bible says that after the events in the belly of the well, that the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he began to call out, Forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh, listen to me, incredible verse here. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe. He covered himself in sackcloth and he sat in ashes. And the king issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh these words. By the decree of the king and his nobles... Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And listen to this. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Father, this morning as we open your word, I pray that the spirit of the living God would descend in this house. Lord, I want to ask you today that 
You will speak to our hearts as a congregation, but also as individual believers, that truth would arise. And as Pastor Justin has been praying for us, that we would know what to do in these given situations. So, Lord, we ask and we invite your anointing. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord may be saying. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, and amen. Many of you know, I, I grew up, my wife and I both actually, we grew up in the panhandle of Florida, uh, outside of Pensacola, um, a, a small town called Milton, Florida, and uh, there was another small town to it called Pace, Florida, and uh, I went to Pace High School, my wife went to the rival Milton High School, you know, and um, I remember when, when I was growing up as a child, I had these, uh, these two older cousins. They were, both, they were both boys, and one was several years older than me. The other was just three or four years older than me, and um, they, were, they were always so good to me. They let me tag along, and, you know, I was kind of like that annoying little, you know, I was kind of like a gnat. I was like super annoying, but they didn't want to, you know, crush my spirit, so they just kind of swatted me away from time to time, but uh, they loved me. It was kind of the, the relationship where uh, they would pick on me a lot, but they wouldn't let anybody else pick on me. Like, it was that kind of relationship. They were always so good to me, and um, one particular day, my mom and their moms decided that they wanted to have a girl's day and they were going to take our sisters and they were going to go and they were going to go on a shopping spree all day. And so the moms decided that they were going to drop the three of us boys off uh, at my grandmother's house. We called her Mimi. They were going to drop us off at Mimi's house. And uh, we decided that um, uh, after a little while being at Mimi's house, we got bored. There wasn't a lot to do over there. And uh, we decided that we were going to go for a walk. And uh, we walked across the street, we walked down the street, we walked all over the street, we went everywhere, and ultimately we ended up finding ourselves in the woods like, you know, typical young boys do. And we found ourselves in this, this wooded lot. It was, it was a couple of acres, but it was, it was wooded, it was vacant, nobody lived there or anything, but, but there was a lot of shrubbery and all this kind of stuff. And one of my cousins just so happened, we discovered as we were walking through, that one of my cousins had a lighter, like a Zippo lighter. And... Um, I mean, the recipe, think of it, it, it was three young boys, okay, um, they're alone in the woods and they have fire, right? And so the logical conclusion is that we need to set something ablaze, right? And so we started and we started trying and, you know, we, we went over and we started collecting like small sticks and, and leaves and different things like that. And one of my cousins would go down and, and try to light it on fire. But it was, it was it, for whatever reason, it was a windy day that day. And so it kind of, it would blow this out and it wouldn't work. And so we'd give up here and we'd say, oh, the wood's wet or something. And we'd go over here and we started like collecting a pile of things and we'd try it again. And, and we went from pot to pot. It, it would never, the, the, the wood would never catch. It would never catch on fire, so we would take sand and kind of, you know, cover it up. And I'm not exaggerating when I say this. We probably did this seven or eight different times. We had like seven or eight different piles. By the end of it, we realized that this ain't happening. You know, like uh, we think that we could do this, but it, it's just not going to happen. And so we decided, well, I guess we'll go back to Mimi's house. We're bored. Um, the lighter's basically out of fluid because we've been trying so long. And so we're going to go back over to Mimi's house. And so as I'm the youngest, I'm probably nine, maybe ten at the time. And we're walking over to Mimi's house. For whatever reason, I'm the last one out of the woods. And for whatever reason, I decided that I would look back. And when I looked back, I saw our seven sand piles just lying there. But what was interesting is that the seven sand piles weren't just sand piles. Now they had flames bursting from every single one of them. And when I say flames bursting, I don't mean like, oh, there's a flicker. I mean flames, right? And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm calling my cousin. I'm saying, Jason, Ashley, the fire, you know? And I'm trying to get their attention. And finally, they, their attention's gotten. They, they come over there. At first, we're so excited because we've done this, right? But then reality settles in. And it's like, dear God, what did we do, right? And all of a sudden, the fire begins to spread like, like crazy. You've heard it like wildfire. This is exactly what it was like. It was like wildfire. We're going over. My cousins are throwing sand. They're trying to spit the fire out. Me, you know, I'm like the moron. So I'm taking like branches and trying to put the fire out. And it's just, it's making it worse and everything. My, my, uh, 
one of my cousins run over. There's, there's a house literally just yards away from me to the wall, just, just yards away. And he runs over and gets their water hose and brings over, but it's not far enough to reach. My other cousin hightails it to Mimi's house. And he says, Mimi, you got to call the fire department. We have just started a forest fire. And um, it, was, it was crazy. By the time it was all said and done, there were, there were police officers, there were ambulances, there were fire trucks. I was nine. I thought it was the greatest thing on the planet. My 16-year-old cousin thought that he was going to juvenile, you know, because he had done everything. But anyway, a whole mixture of emotions. But by the time it was said and done, we ended up burning down over an acre of land, right? Super, super bad, Okay. So there are a lot of lessons that you can teach your children and your grandchildren out of the story. Um, but let me, let, me, let me say this. We live, we live in very, a very peculiar time right now. We live, we live in, the, in the oddest time. I'm, I just turned 40 a couple weeks ago, and I, we live in the, in the most strange time that I've ever lived in in my life. And I think that most of you would feel the same way. But I'm going to tell you, I think it's important for us not to misunderstand what's going on. I think it's very important for us. Pastor said it really, really well at times. He has said that there are going to be times when the church, when it seems, when it feels to us like we are losing before we will realize that we are actually winning. And I believe that there is coming a day, even in this very strange time that we're living in, when the wind of God is going to blow fresh and new. And listen to me, the very thing that, that we think the fire is extinguishing is really the thing that he is fanning into flame. And I believe that God is going to be sending a spiritual renewal an awakening. I believe that we're going to see souls come into the kingdom like we have never seen before. I'm going to, I'm going to prove a point to you today, I hope. But my point is simply this. I think that we have got to be a people that do not misunderstand the day in which we live. And we've got to be wise enough and, and not so short-sighted that we can only see what's in front of us, but we can see what's to come. And I believe that part of what's to come is a great harvest of lost souls. I'm going to tell you, I couldn't agree more with, with pastor, the entirety of pastor's sermon last week. Couldn't have agreed more. And I'll even go as far to say I believe that, that we are, if we are not at the beginning phases of judgment, I, I believe that we are at least at the brink of this moment in our nation. But I'm going to tell you this. I think we need to, to remind ourselves again and again that regardless of what situation we find ourselves in as a nation, whether we're at the beginning of judgment, at the brink of judgment, mid-judgment, after judgment, we have got to remind ourselves that God has always been and he will always be about the business of bringing lost souls to the cross. We've got to remember that. Listen to me. It is still true that God is not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. It is still true that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we've got to remind ourselves and not get so entrenched in what is going on only in our world that we lose sight of what is going on in the, in the world and lives of other people. And so this is what I'm going to say. How we deal with this moment matters. How we deal with people who are not Christians matters. And how we deal with the harvest when it comes to fruition matters. And I want you to understand as we read through and we understand Jonah today, Jonah did not do well in this regard. Jonah did not handle the loss well. He did not handle the harvest when it came in. He did not do these things really well. And it's incredibly surprising that he didn't because Jonah, of all people, had been given chance after chance after chance, not just his life. I mean, God had saved and spared his life multiple times just in this setting. But it wasn't just that God was being gracious with his life. God was being gracious with his soul. God was forgiving Jonah and giving Jonah another opportunity to fulfill the call of God in his life. And so we look at Jonah and, and we just can't imagine why he would have this disposition towards the Ninevites that he would not want them to come to salvation. 
you gotta, you got to remember that Jonah is, is not just a prophet, but he's a, he is a learned prophet. Jonah surely knew about the failures of, of the Abrahams and the Moseses and, and the Samsons. Jonah knows about all these failures and God's redeeming mercy. But Jonah has now experienced these mercies for himself, but he's being incredibly selfish with them and just wanting them for himself and not for other people. And so all of this begs the question if Jonah understands the depths of God's grace and his merciful nature, if Jonah understands this also well, it begs the question, why? Why would Jonah run in the first place? I mean, God has basically given Nineveh into his hands. There's not a preacher on this planet today, I don't think, that if God came and said, Corey, I want you to go preach to this people and 100,000 people are going to come to faith in Christ. There's very few things that can stop me from doing this. But apparently, there were some things inside of Jonah that he had not worked out yet that were hindering him, that had come between his desire for the lost to be saved, and it ended up being a problem. So there are some questions that we need to ask. Why would Jonah refuse? Why would he run in the first place? But then why would he even be reluctant? Greg Laurie, which is one of my, if you know Greg Laurie, he is a tremendous evangelist, a great man of God. He, I cut my teeth on him when I was a new believer, him and like uh, Charles Swan, uh, Swanley, (laughs) uh, Stanley, uh, Chuck Swindoll, these guys, man, I cut, they're incredible men of God. And so, uh, Greg Laurie, I was listening to him one time, and he proposed some questions that we need to ask ourselves in, in light of what Jonah's going through. And these are, these are three questions that, that Greg Laurie asked, and I want to I give my response to his questions. His question for why Jonah would choose to run instead of engaging with an invite, his first question was this. He said, perhaps the task was too difficult for Jonah to do. And my response would be that it's incredibly doubtful that the task was too difficult for Jonah to do. And for a couple of reasons. Number one, every time we see Jonah's name mentioned in Scripture, it is equated with spiritual success and spiritual fruit. Every time Jonah prophesies in Scripture, it comes to pass. In 2 Kings, we see this this situation where uh, Jonah goes and he prophesies before one of the kings of the northern uh, kingdom of, of Israel. And the Bible says that Jonah prophesied that Israel, although she had lost some of her land, that she would in time regain her ancient boundaries and bring them back. And that is exactly what happened. When Jonah goes and he ultimately preaches to the Ninevites, what happens? It is fruitful. It is successful. The anointing returns is powerful. So I don't think that Jonah is nervous about the difficulty of the task. Furthermore, I'm going to say this. Do you realize that in the Hebrew, Jonah's message to the Ninevites was only five words? It was only, listen to me. I've prepared sermons for the last 20 years. It would be amazing If I could stand up, some of you would love it. If I would just stand up and say five words and be done, it would be amazing. Jonah walks through, he says five words, and hundreds of thousands of people turn, and they turn to Yahweh. It's it's an incredible moment. So I don't think that the task is too difficult. The second question he asks is, is the task uh, too far for Jonah? Is Is it a geographical situation? And to this, I would contend with this also for, for this reason. Jonah is in one location. God calls him to go to Nineveh, which is about 500 miles away. That's from here to Washington, D.C. But instead, Jonah decides that he is not going to go to Nineveh, that he is going to go to Tarshish, which is 2,500 miles away. So the mere fact that Jonah is willing to travel five times farther To avoid the call of God, it speaks to me and says it's not an issue of distance. It's not about locale. It's not about geography, okay? The third question, which is probably the most valid question, is was the task too risky for Jonah? Now, the reason this may be valid is because apparently the the evil, the vileness, and the sin of Nineveh had reached a peak. The Lord is ready to destroy Nineveh in this moment. Her cup is filled right? And God is ready to unleash the judgment of God over Nineveh. 
the Assyrian nation, which, which Assyria is the nation that, that Jonah's going to. Nineveh is like one of the capital cities that he's going to. Assyria, they are, they are incredibly violent. They're, they're, they have signature traits about their grotesque way of, and we'll talk about some of this in a minute, but but they're, they're, even their king, when, when, they, when they turn to the Lord, right, the king sets out in this decree. And he says, listen, people, turn from your wicked ways, but also turn from the violence that's in your hand, right? The prophet Nahum was talking about the Ninevites one day. And listen, listen to what he says. He says, what sorrow awaits Nineveh, the city of murder and lies? She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. There are countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies that people stumble over them, right? This is a, this is a very wicked nation, a very warlike, bloodthirsty nation. We could even say that they may have been the equivalent of modern-day terrorists or, or Nazis from the 1900s. They were just a very wicked and vile people. So there's some validity that Jonah may have, may have feared for his life. But being the prophet of God that hears the audible voice of God and has seen the wondrous works of God, it is surprising to me, it would be surprising to me, if Jonah wasn't willing to do that because he was afraid of the people instead of being afraid of God. Right? So I, I, I don't even think that adds up. I'll tell you what I think the answer was. I think the reason that Jonah fled is because he felt that the task was too compassionate of the Lord. I think that Jonah had so much hatred and disdain for the Ninevites in his own heart that when God spoke to him and he said, I want you to go and to preach a message of repentance, that Jonah felt that God's overlooking and forgiveness of their sins was far too merciful. You want to know how I know that? I looked ahead in chapter 4. Listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says here in verse, starting in verse 1, the Bible says this, listen. But the repentance of the Ninevites displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Listen to me. Have you ever seen a person come to an altar and accept the forgiveness of Christ, and you are mad about it? No. I hope not. Maybe. I don't know. I've never experienced that emotion. But the Bible says that Jonah was so displeased exceedingly that he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my own country? Listen, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. In other words, he's saying it wasn't because it was too violent. It wasn't the distance. This is why. Because I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Listen to me. Jonah's having a moment. I have seen mega meltdowns. If you can, we, have a, we have a baby factory at my house, right? <laughs> we have five children. I have seen some mega meltdowns, right? I've seen the tempers, and I've seen the throwing of toys, and I've seen, you know, their son is smiling like drooling, you know, inaudible groans. Like, you never know what's, okay, you don't know how to deal. But listen to me. Out of all the hardship, and listen, I've, I've got a, a six-month-old, and I've got a 19-year-old, and everything in between, okay? But I have never, I have never seen a meltdown where any of my children said, Dad, it's better for me to die than to live. I cannot believe you did that for that other person. Kill me now! Because I'm so upset that you were kind to those other people. But Jonah's having a moment. Listen to me. Grip the humanity of, of Jonah in this moment. Jonah's an amazing prophet of God. He loves the Lord. There's no doubt. But grip the, the human side of Jonah in this moment. 
Jonah's wrestling with some very real hatred in his heart towards the Ninevites. And he's not, you know, you got to understand, he has grown up in Israel, where they have heard about the tyranny of the Assyrians and, and how Israel has had to pay an annual tribute. They have, they have basically been held hostage by the Assyrians and, and the torturous techniques and the constant threats. Jonah has grown up in this environment of fear, right? So he's wrestling with all these things, but Jonah's also wrestling with some reputation, right? Jonah is the prophet of God. He's not just prophesying here and there. He's prophesying before kings, right? And so Jonah has to understand that if I go and I preach to these Ninevites and they come to saving grace, that I've got to go home and answer to moms and pops. I've got to answer to my friends that equally hate the Ninevites. I've got to answer possibly to the king who hates Ninevites. And I've got to go back to all my pals who are prophets and I've got to tell them what I just did. So Jonah is wrestling with a lot of things in this moment. And, and listen to me, I'm not even saying that the things Jonah was wrestling with were wrong. Some of the things that he was dealing with were justified, right? There, there, were, there were some atrocities that were done to people. There was reason not to like the Ninevites. But Jonah did something in this moment that you and I need to learn from that we can never do ourselves. Jonah allowed sin done against him to produce sin in him. You hear that? He allowed sin that had been done against him that was wrong and wicked and evil, sin that had been done against him and his people. He allowed that to produce sin of hatred inside of him. Listen, we've all seen situations like this, right? Right? We've seen situations where a young girl is molested as a child and she grows up and the rest of her life she hates men because of what a man has done to her, right? So she has allowed a vile and wicked sin that was done against her to ultimately produce sin in her. Now, let me be clear. I understand this from the human aspect. I understand the trauma. I understand what's going on. I'm not justifying this. But what I am saying is that when things are done against us, we can't allow it to do things in us. We have got to lean on grace. We've seen people that have been hurt at churches. And they leave that church and they go to another church. And instead of being healed from that and, and doing a Matthew 18 and going to the church leadership and expressing their grievances, they leave that, they write off, and they go to another place. And all they begin to do is slander the former leadership. Now, sin may have been done to them at that other church. Wrong. But what they've allowed to happen is sin done against them to produce sin in them. And this is exactly what is happening with Jonah. And frankly, it's, it's pretty ironic because, I mean, Israel, if you think about it, Israel's not, you know, a picture-perfect scenario either. She's not innocent by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm not just talking about war. I'm talking about child sacrifice. And I'm talking about the making of idols and the worship of idols. And I'm talking about, you know, in the book of Judges where a woman is basically raped to death and a man takes her back home. And because of the vileness that was done to this woman by the own people, the man decides to go and he takes her dead body and he cuts her body into 12 different pieces. And he attaches a note to each piece and he sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he cries out at them and he says, my brothers, is this how far we have fallen? That we are allowing these things to be done to our own people, by our own people. So Israel isn't this picture of perfect holiness. But what's fascinating, what's fascinating, you know this is true, and I, know, I definitely know this is true, that when I begin to weigh my sin against other people's sin, almost every single time, the scale tips in my favor. This is exactly what's happening with Jonah. Right? The scale, Jonah is saying, look, I know my people are, I know that the Ninevites, but the Ninevites, whoo, they are really, really bad. Right? And the beautiful thing about the economy of God is that his scales are perfectly balanced. 
They are perfectly full of justice and righteousness. And so Jonah reluctantly goes and he preaches this message of repentance to the Ninevites. He goes and he preaches this message. Now, let me say this really quickly about messages of judgment. I believe that God is a God of judgment as much as God is a God of graciousness and and mercy. I, I fully embrace that. But I think that we have to understand that when a message of judgment comes, it, does, it is not always an unavoidable event. Oftentimes when messages of judgment comes, it is for the choosing of the path that you want to take. It's like, like I said, I grew up in Florida. It's like being under a hurricane warning, right? They, they will show this map and they'll say, okay, if you're from this area to this area, you are under a, hur- a hurricane warning. But a hurricane warning does not always automatically mean a direct hit. Sometimes that hurricane, listen to me, and if you're the people of God, what you're praying is that that storm will turn and go a different direction, or you're praying that storm will dissipate. But you are praying at the same time, you're also preparing in case the storm doesn't turn. And it's the same with judgment. When we hear messages of judgment, we go to the Father, Father, please turn, let this not be so for your people. But if it comes to pass, we will be prepared for the day when it comes. And so Nineveh is, is taught this message of repentance from the prophet Jonah. Now, Nineveh is, is, is called a great city several times throughout, and, and Nineveh is great in, in several different ways. Let me just uh, real quickly mention this. Nineveh is great in her size. She is an enormous, an, an enormous capital city in the nation of Assyria. It's estimated that there are uh, between, you know, the Bible says in Jonah 4 that, that there are 120,000 people who don't know the right hand from their left hand. A lot of scholars believe that this was talking about children, which means the amount of people that would have been in the city would have been, you know, at least double that, if not more. So uh, some people estimate that the greater area of Nineveh was up to 600,000 people. It's, it's circumference of the city was 60 miles, right? You realize that, that the greater Columbia area, there's, there's about 800,000 people. So we're not talking about an insignificant population. We're talking about a very significant uh, city here. Some of the, some of the uh, you know, I was reading and they were talking about the gates of the city. There, there is a gate in the city that is like eight miles long and it has 15 entry points in which, I mean, an enormous city. So it was a huge city on so many ways, but it was also an incredibly successful city. They had experienced prosperity for years and decades and years, right? They had not only uh, uh, conquered other lands and towns and villages, but even other nations they had conquered, and they had taken their goods in. Their economy was booming through many, many years. Um, They were a very successful nation. But number three, and probably most importantly, what the Lord was speaking about when he said that great city, he was speaking specifically of the greatness of their sin. Understand this. Nineveh They had a signature trait when it came to warfare. It's like there are some American Indian tribes that that way back years and years and years ago, their signature trait in warfare was to scalp their enemy, right? And so when you would come upon the carcass of the, the dead person, you would be able to look and quickly be able to identify who had done that, right? And there was intention there because they wanted their enemies to understand you don't want to mess with us, right? And Nineveh was no different. Different. Their signature trait, however, was not scalping an individual, but it was skinning an individual alive. It was filleting the flesh off of their bodies. In your notes, there's a, there's a quote from, a, there's an inscription in a temple where one of the kings talks about this. But let me, let me just tell you a couple of things that Ninevites would do to their enemies. They would take some of them, they would skin some of them alive. I was reading one time years ago about a king who he had conquered a land and he, he had so much hatred in his heart towards these Ninevites that he took the, the, the chief men of it and he filleted them alive and he took their skins to insulate his home. There are stories where Ninevites, would, they would create just piles and piles of skulls. They would take these wooden, uh, these wooden poles and they would sharpen them at the end. And they would take a, a grown man, uh, their enemy, they would strip them naked and they would take their body and they would drop them and the, the spear would impale them and they would leave them outside of the gates of the city in the desert sun to roast to death as they were impaled. And it was all a signal 
to the people that would pass by on the two rivers on either side of Nineveh and the caravans that would come through on their camels. It was a signal to them that Nineveh is not here to play games, that if you mess with us, it's not going to end well for you. And they were a bloodthirsty people. They were a very wild and evil and vile type of people. So the Lord is specifically talking about the sin of Nineveh that is great. But the amazing thing that Yahweh God brings about is the greatness of their salvation in Nineveh. You realize that even in all their wickedness, that they are so quick to repent. Five words in the Hebrew language coded with the anointing of the Holy Spirit turn the hearts of men and women in a moment. And people say, how does that happen? And I'll tell you, frankly, I don't know outside of the work of God, but I gotta, I gotta be honest with you, I do have theories and my theories abound. But let me tell you what my theory is. My theory is that I believe that the judgment of God had actually already begun to encroach upon the city of Nineveh. They didn't know it as the judgment of God. But when you read history around this time, what you begin to understand is that on the Assyrian borders, conflicts were breaking out with other nations all over. Their, their military might was, was thinned out. And it wasn't just enemies, but even within the nation of Assyria, there were internal revolts and riots that were beginning to spring up. And so their security was spread thin. There were famines that were sweeping across the land that were affecting not only their, their physical strength, but it was also affecting their livelihood and their economy. I believe that Nineveh was already on the brink in the beginning stages of judgment because God is not the God that just brings destruction and judgment without warning and fairness. And so as we look at Nineveh, we see that the possibility absolutely exists. And I don't know where you are theologically with this, but let me just tell you what, what I personally believe has happened. I believe that God has sent or at least allowed darkness and judgment to begin encroaching the land. And God has created an environment that is so dark. You've got to understand, these children, these adults, for generations and generations, they knew nothing but death and destruction and darkness. That's all they knew. And God had allowed such darkness to overwhelm the people that when the first sign of light pierced through, it pierced their souls. Because for the first time in their entire existence, now all of a sudden, we are not just a people set for death. We are a people with the opportunity of salvation and everlasting eternal life. I'm going to tell you, it's a, a thing that I wonder sometimes if we don't find ourselves as Americans in this very same situation. Where God is allowing some really, really bad things to happen so that we can avoid some worse things from happening. It's what C.S. Lewis would call a, a, a severe mercy. It's a merciful act, although it's severe, it is ultimately in our favor. And Nineveh gets to experience this firsthand. And then out of your entire Bible, one of the most refreshing sentences, one of the most powerful, potent verses in all of Scripture is in Jonah 3.10 when Scripture says this, And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I'm telling you, I'm not a prophet. But I'm telling you this, a few weeks ago, when our church family and our nation, really as a whole, many, many from our nation, when we decided to be very intentional and we decided to be a part of something we called the return, and we decided that as the people of God, we were going to humble ourselves and pray and turn from our wicked ways and to identify with our nation, even though we have not necessarily been guilty of the sin, we are guilty by association, and we have repented on behalf of our nation. And I'm telling you this, we're not done, but let me tell you this, I believe that we caught the ears of heaven on that day. I believe that with all my heart. And we got a lot of work to do. We ain't out of the woods. We're not done. But I'm telling you this, God is reluctant. He wants to relent. 
He is merciful. He is slow to anger. We are not doomed. But there's work to be done. And so the Ninevites, as they are experiencing this, listen, can you imagine? The heathen is repenting quicker than the prophet. The man, listen to me, in Jonah 4, do you know what, do you know what Jonah's doing after the people, after he sees people repent? Jonah goes up on a hillside outside of Nineveh, he creates a little camp, he grabs his popcorn, and he's waiting for the show of destruction to come. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that Jonah sat and he said, I'm waiting to see what will become a Nineveh, whether they will repent or whether God will destroy them. He had so much hatred in his heart that the heathens were quicker to repent. And listen to me say that. I believe that day is coming for us. I'm not, listen to me, I'm, you, if you know me, I am not the uh, prosperity gospel. Yes, if you just say it, I am not that guy. I promise you on so many levels I am not that guy. But I'm telling you this. I believe that there's coming a brighter day than what we can possibly ever imagine. Now, it may look far different than what we anticipate or even what we hope for. But I'm telling you, God is continually and will be in the pursuit of the souls of men and women, even in the midst of judgment. When you look at the plagues that, that Moses had called on the people of Israel, when you look at the plagues, before each plague, there was a reprieve. There was a moment where God poured out judgment and he pulled back so that there could be a moment of repentance for the people. When you look at the book of Revelation and you begin to see the wrath of God poured out on all of humanity, there are moments of judgment and then there are moments of reprieve so that people can repent. God is forever and always, even in the midst of judgment, looking to redeem the lost souls of humankind. And just as much as he wanted Nineveh to be saved, he wants America to be saved as well. I believe that. And I'm not just talking about America as a whole. I'm talking about your family members and your coworkers and my friends. God wants there to be a turning. And I believe that it's going to be a much brighter day than what we can possibly imagine. So let me, let me just say this. I know I'm out of time. I think that we have to be a people who prepare for the harvest. Can you imagine a farmer who does not prepare to bring in the harvest? It's a disaster. What do you do with all this? Well, you know what happens to the produce that's come in? It dies if the people aren't prepared to receive it. And we've got to be a people that are preparing ourselves to receive the harvest. And so I would, I would simply say this to us. Two things, and, and we're going to close. Number one, I think that one way we prepare to receive the harvest is to ask God to reveal and remove any seen or unseen hatred in my heart. Can I tell you the most scary thing about Jonah's life? Is that his theology was perfect and precise. His theology was exactly right. The trouble is, is that his theology was stuck in his head, not in his heart. Listen to me. I believe in education. I believe that we as believers, especially in this day, you need to be educated and know why you believe what you believe. Right? It's not enough anymore to say, well, I just believe. It, nope, that's not enough. We need to be educated and know why we believe the things that we believe. But I'm going to tell you, if it's just stuck up here, the potential for it to do far more harm than good is very evident as we see here. As we see in Jonah's life, where although he's preaching mercy, he has no mercy of his own to extend to the people. Jonah had some very real issues with the people. Some of them legitimate. Some of them had merit. Some of them did not. But Jonah had some very real issues. But again, Jonah allowed what we can never allow. He allowed the sin that had been done against him and his people to become sin within him, and we cannot do it. So let me just say this. As we ask the Lord to prepare us for the harvest, can I just ever so lovingly, kindly say this? Please, for the love of God in heaven, please don't allow your views to come between the lost and Jesus. Listen to me. I'm not even saying your views are wrong. I'm not saying they're wrong. They're probably, listen, 
you realize Thanksgiving and Christmas are upon us, right? Some of you are already writing scripts. You're like, I know exactly what I'm going to say to Uncle Bob, you know? And, but, and listen to me. I'm not against it. Listen, I got opinions that are amazing. My opinions abound. They're probably better than your opinions, okay? <laughs> I've got many, many opinions. I've got a lot of opinions about a lot of different things. But I'm going to tell you, I've got to be measured in when I share those opinions and with whom I share those opinions, because this is the reason why. I never know what the Lord is doing in somebody else's heart. You understand that? Well, some people, well, daggum, this is the time we gotta, we got to speak up. Yeah, I, I believe that. On some levels, this is a moment to speak up. But on other levels, it's a moment to shut up. Ecclesiastes says that a wise person understands that there are moments to speak and there are moments to be silent. Now, what is it at Thanksgiving dinner? I don't know. I'm not sitting at your table. But I do know that Jesus told us to walk with wisdom, that Jesus told us to walk with discernment, that we should be a people who are as wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. And the reason, again, and I'll say it again, we're going to close here in just one second. It's because you and I never know what is transpiring in the hearts of the people that we encounter. You never know what God's doing. The reason this is so personal to me is because on that Wednesday night, I, I didn't even really plan for it, obviously. It just kind of happened. Um, it's because on, on that particular night, I decided that, that I would share a little bit of my story to solidify the point that you never know what's going on in the heart of, of another person. Now, I'll tell you this. I don't share my history or my story very often, and I'm going to do this in five minutes and be done. Part of the reason is because some of the things uh, in, in my past are incredibly embarrassing. Part of it is because I don't want to, you know, give glory to the, the works of darkness. But at the same time, I understand that there's power. There is, there is anointed power in a testimony of a person who's come to faith in Christ. And so I don't want to neglect that either. So again, this is a moment where I may not have shared this un, until the summer for, for years. I, I felt like this is a, a pretty appropriate moment. So... Um, as, as a child, I, like I said, I grew up in, in, in Florida, and I was raised in an incredible home. I, had a, I have a sister. Um, she's about four years older than me. I had two very loving parents, always affirming, always just, just good parents. My entire adolescence was very positive experience. But when, when I encroached on adolescence in, in early teenage years, um, our family, for a number of reasons I'm not even going to get into, but our family broke apart. It was virtually destroyed. And through the series of events, like any young person would be understandable to go through a family trauma like that, um, I, I started to explore some, some very dark places. And by the time I was 16, I had, I had 16, 17, um, I had developed some, some pretty significant uh, bad habits with narcotics. And there were some defining moments in my life, even way back then, where I knew that God was doing something, even though I could not articulate what God was doing. So, for instance, I remember one, one morning waking up after a long night I remember waking up in a house and I woke up and I did not even recognize where I was. And what I came to find out is that I had just woken up on a mattress, not even a bed frame, on a mattress that was sitting on a dirt floor inside of a structure. And what I later come to find out is that I was sitting, I, I had fallen asleep in a crack house. And it was one of those moments where I woke up and I didn't even know what the Spirit was. I didn't know it was the Lord, but I remember thinking to myself, God, this is not where, this is not what I want. This is not what I want. Now, it didn't change anything in my life. It didn't change my behavior. As a matter of fact, if anything, I think I, I leaned in uh, a little bit more. But then there was this one night, and probably the most defining night, where I was over at a friend's house and we decided that we were going to, um, to take some hallucinogen. Okay. And we all had this friend kind of in, in our friendship group, and we were all just terrible people. Um, but anyway, um, we, we had this one particular friend, um, and his name was Randy. 
And he was like, if, if you know how Paul said, I was the chief among sinners. Randy would probably describe himself the chief among the worst of, of people. I mean, he was just, uh, he was a close friend. I was so glad he was his friend because I didn't want to die. Um, but anyway, he was, he was uh, not a great person. Randy had disappeared like six months earlier. Like, nobody had heard from him. I mean, we would, like, go by his house and try to call him. That was when we had pagers. You remember that? We had pagers, and we'd try to page him and be like, 911. He'd never call back, and we didn't know if he was dead. We didn't know what was going on. We found out he was actually alive. He was just ghosting us. I mean, he was just utterly ignoring us for, like, six months. And the rumor had been that Randy, at some point, he had found religion, which is how my friends had put it, and he had pretty much put everybody in his life on, on the back burner uh, away from him. And so my friend and I, we decided that that particular night that we were going we to take LSD. And so we did. And, and those things take about 40, 45 minutes to kind of kick into your system. And we had did that. And not five minutes after we had dropped acid, we hear this knock at the door. And we answer the door. And guess who it is? It's my friend Randy. And he walks through the door and we're talking. We're like, where have you been? You know, this is like ridiculous and everything. And we ended up, you know, it was ended up fine and everything. And by the end of the conversation, about 10 minutes into it, he said, hey, listen, I got some friends who are, they have a, a, a condo on the beach. I'm going to go over there just to visit with them and stuff. Why don't you ride with me? And so I decided, yeah, I'll do that. You know, and so I go and I get in the vehicle with Randy. And we don't get to the, I'm not exaggerating when I say this, we don't get to the stop sign of the road. And Randy looks at me and he says, Corey, he said, is this what you want your life to be like? He said, if you died in this car tonight, what do you think would happen to your soul? And instantly, I started, you have to understand, when you're taking hallucinogen, like one seed can, can just explode into things. And I looked at him, I said, Randy, don't talk to me about this right now. You know what this will do to me. Don't do this. But it was already too late. Because about 14 seconds later, I was in a fetal position in his vehicle having the worst experience of my entire life. Demonic faces, worms crawling over my body, the stench of death in my nostrils, and I started to cry, and I said, Randy, I need you to, I need you to take me somewhere safe. I don't care where we go. I want you to take me somewhere safe. And he, being the good friend that he was, he took me back to his house, and the rest of that night, I'm so embarrassed he even says, we watched, we watched TBN for the rest of the night that night. <laughs> And uh, he stayed awake with me the entire night. He stayed awake with me the entire night. And he tended to my needs, and he, w- he was so good for me. The next morning, I, as soon as the, everything wore off, immediately, I didn't even tell him. I immediately left his house. I went to my friend's house, and I had, like, an emotional breakdown because of the experience, the traumatic experience that I had just had. And it wasn't until my friend had calmed me down that all of a sudden I got a page on my phone or a uh, text. What do you what, uh, on, I got a page on my pager. <laughs> and uh, I looked at it, and I didn't recognize the number, so I called it. And on the other end of the line, now, now granted, this is, this is hours after this experience had just happened. And on the other end of this phone call was a beautiful voice of a saintly girl named Joy Carpenter. And Joy said, hey, Corey, this is Joy. I know we haven't talked. I haven't seen you in like six or seven years. I know we haven't talked, but I saw your sister the other day, and I was wondering if you wanted to maybe get together and spend some time together, maybe come visit church with me. And as soon as she said that, I looked at the phone like, what is happening? (laughs) And instantly I said, I said, thank you so much for calling. No, I will not go to church with you. I said that. I said I won't. And she said, no, 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 that's fine. She said, that's fine. But if you, ever, if you ever want to get together and just hang out and kind of catch up, just let me know because we had known each other in childhood. And so I said, okay. Well, in my mind, I knew she was super hot, right? And so I thought, there may be an opportunity here. And so a couple of weeks later, I returned her call and I said, hey, Corey, this is Joy. I w- I'm not willing to go to church with you. I'm just not willing to do that. But I'd love to take you to a movie one night. And so we went, we went on our first date. Please, kids, if you're listening, learn from the worst, okay? <laughs> on my first date with a Christian girl I knew to be definitively Christian, I took her to an R-rated movie. <laughs> and following that, I took her for ice cream at McDonald's. Don't follow this example. <laughs> Don't. Now listen, just because it worked out well for me doesn't mean it's going to work that way for you, all right? <laughs> Don't be cheap. 
break out the bucks, okay? Take out a loan. Do what you got to do, all right? And listen, uh, ultimately, ultimately this. A few weeks later, we ended up going to this Christmas thing, an outdoor Christmas thing with my family, my sister, which, is, which has always been so good to me. We were walking, and we were, <laughs> we were walking, and, and we walk outside, and they had all these fire pits set up throughout. My sister came up to me, and Joy was off doing something, and my sister came up to me, and she kind of snuggled up against me, and she said, I just love you so much, and, and I told her I loved her. And she was looking at the fire, and she said, God, she said, can you imagine what hell is like? And I was just like, Jesus, what are you doing to me? <laughs> long story short, long story short, very long story short, I end up, I end up going to church with joy. And I end up on January 4th, 1999, I, I surrender my life to Christ, okay? And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for that. The thing that I see now that I did not see then is all the opportunities that presented itself for someone to absolutely detract me from the path that I was on simply because they did not know what God had been doing in me for months. Listen to me. If anybody ever shows up to my house to take my daughter out, looking the way that I looked and talking the way that I talked, you'd better get a life because it ain't happening, right? It's not going to happen. But somehow, in the kindness of God and the kindness of Joy's parents, they allowed for it. And I'm going to tell you, when I, when, I, when I did end up going to the church, I was not dressing the way that everybody else was dressing. Definitely wasn't talking the way that everybody was talking. I wasn't living the way that they were living, and I wasn't thinking the way that they were thinking. And I'm just, I'm just telling you, I'm just telling you. It probably would have not taken a lot for me to be detracted from the course that God had set out for me based on the stupidity of comments from well-meaning people because they lack discernment. I know that sounds harsh, and I'm so sorry. I'm not, I'm not even talking about you. These are the people online for sure. Um, no, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about you. Um, I'm simply saying this. You never know what the Lord is doing in the heart of another person. May we walk with wisdom, with our words, and with our actions. May we be like our Father who is filled with compassion and not like Jonah, who's filled with contempt. Mamas and daddies and grandmamas and granddaddies, don't give up on your babies that are away from Jesus. I'm going to tell you, I'm here today because of praying parents and grandparents and siblings. Don't give up because you never know what God is doing in them. You won't be able to see it. Listen to me. Jonah could not see what was happening in the hearts of the Ninevites. But the spirit of the Lord had gone before him. And he had begun to work. And as you pray for those in your family who were lost and your friends who were lost, you can be rest assured that the spirit of God is going before you. You may not be able to see it, but he's doing work. So keep the faith and be strong. Because listen to me say this. God is quick to relent slow to anger, merciful and gracious in all his ways. And he wants the best for us, even if it doesn't feel like it sometimes. He does. Amen. Will you stand with me? Let me pray for you really quickly. Listen, if you're here online, I want to I echo our pastor. He always makes the greatest declaration. Listen, if you are far away from Jesus or if you don't know the Lord, pastor always says, that the only two things, the, the two starting steps that you need to know is that we are great sinners and we have rebelled against God. But we have a great Savior who is eager to receive us home. And if you are here today and you want to 
make a profession of faith, if you want to give your life to Christ, we're going to ask our prayer ministry team. They're going to kind of go this way, and they're going to slide out that door. We're not taking you hostage or anything. It's nothing weird like that. But we would love to pray with you. We just do this for social distancing and everything. And they're going to be right out this door. And furthermore, if you have prayer needs or anything, if you need prayer for anything, these fine people would love to pray with you. Um, before you leave. But let me, let me pray your prayer blessing on you, and then this morning we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and be dismissed. Father, we're so thankful, Lord, that you are a God of relenting, and you are a God of second and third and quadrillion chances, and that you're slow to anger, but you're quick to be gracious, and you're fast in forgiveness. And I would ask you this morning that the spirit of the living God would move on hearts of people that are not with you, that the Lord would move quickly and decisively in the hearts of these people. I pray for us as Christian life family. I pray for myself as an individual. Father, that you will help my heart to prepare for the harvest, that you will help me to be a person that sees the spiritual condition of every person I speak to, not just their physical condition. And I pray, Father, that as we prepare for the harvest, as we prepare for this room to be overflowing with multiple services and venues, that as people come and they touch Jesus, that they will truly touch resurrection life. And not just from your spirit, but from your people who love them and embrace them where they are. So God, will you help us to be all that you've called us to be? Strengthen us for these days, for I believe they will be beautiful. We ask it in the name of your great son, Jesus, our Lord, amen, amen, and amen.